You're listening to the greyhill.com's Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Barry Robertson, and welcome to Season 2. Welcome again to Insights Podcast here on the Grey Hill. Today we are joined by a self-proclaimed storyteller, Liam Alexandru, the co-director of the award-winning company Shipped Wrecked Productions. Liam, welcome to Insights here at the Grey Hill. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Barry. It's great to, to be here. I'm so glad you're here today because it feels as though our relationships went back for quite a while. We've been talking about Late Night Fish for ages and I'm super excited that it's now been released. But can you start us off by sharing with us a little bit about Shipwreck Productions? Of course, yeah. Do you know what? I even think, does Late Night Fish out, outdate uh, Shipwreck? <laughs> That's how long we've been talking. That's how long we've got to know each other since the <laughs> since the creation of the company. Um <laughs> Yeah, so where do I start with the company? Um, myself and my two uh, colleagues um, and good friends of mine, Charles and Theo, we all kind of came together in the January of 2020. Um, Charles and I had been touring actors together and we had, you know, rekindled our friendship after being out of the country for a while and we decided to start writing uh, a play actually about Greek mythology, coincidentally. I don't know why I'm saying coincidentally. We haven't talked about Greek mythology at all. <laughs> um uh, and uh, we said we should actually do this. I previously owned a, another theatre company on an amateur level, um, but it, you know it was just so hard to manage by myself. And I was like, maybe we should do this together. Mm. Two heads are better than one. Um, he's trained. He's down in London. We both have, can put our experiences together. And that's when he mentioned Theo, another friend that he wanted to go into business with, but on the kind of filming side of things. And that's when we just said, well, why not? You know, just bring all three together and make this kind of multi arts, multimedia company which focuses on film and theatre so we all met at new year's probably the worst time to meet because everyone was drunk um we met a few days later to kind of put the stamp on and be like yes shipwreck productions this is what we're going to do and then we performed late night fish for the first ever time at the beginning of march 2020 and then two days later boom we're in lockdown so (laughs) perfect time to start a company if you ask me Liam, who came up with the name Shipwrecked Productions? Because it's got nothing to do with film, theatre or arts at all. Right. Okay. This is disputed. And if Charles and Theo are hearing this, they'll hate me for (laughs) saying this. But um, we were trying to think of any sort of name that could, you know, sounded quite cool and quite good. Um, We wanted something catchy. Um, Charles and Theo come from like a more business savvy kind of nature and background. So they wanted something that really kind of pops as a name. Not necessarily strictly to do with theatre or film but something that can become a brand in itself and so we went through all sorts of names um and I think one of us brought up the the name Trainwreck and I was like I'm pretty sure that's a film I know that's a band and then I just went I, I think I even just sounds like a proper shipwreck or something like that um I swear I came up with it Theo's <laughs> convinced he came up with it and maybe Charles thinks he came up with it but we just kind of looked at each other and just went Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, and um, that's how we got the name. We also kind of frequent a pub down in London called the Blue Anchor. So if anyone's listening from there, there you go. That's some free publicity. Um, and it just kind of that nautical sense just kind of became a bit of a feeling for us. So we're like, yeah, this seems to seems to roll off the tongue. But you no, know, try saying shipwreck productions three times in a row really quickly. It's it's impossible. 
Yeah, especially if you're dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> of, which, of which two out of three of us are. So Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I like to ask everyone, because of the podcast and the people that I'm talking to at the moment, it's about journeys. And I think a lot of people that are listening to the podcast can reflect to this, but um, I'm really interested in your journey. And what I want to ask you is, what was your motivation of setting up a production company? Like, obviously, you started out as an actor, but what was what made you set up Shipwreck? Like, were you at a point in your career where you were just like, I need to do something? Like, I love this story because I think when you train as an actor, I don't think they tell as much about the business. Hence why I'm asking, like, what made you start this company from an acting background experience? Uh, well, I suppose this this actual conversation, this uh, the answer to this question, goes back way before even shipwreck. Um, actually, back to twenty fourteen. Um, I was eighteen. I just kind of got out of the, um, my uh, foundation course um, that I was training in in theatre and uh, acting in Worcestershire, and um, we had this we have this local theatre festival called the Worcestershire Theatre Festival, which is a, a part of a big grander amateur theatre production uh, theatre festival called the All England Theatre Festival um and some colleagues and friends of mine had already taken part in it put on their own shows and it just seemed like a really good opportunity to kind of hone the skills that I've just learned and also kind of give friends of mine who are also actors kind of roles and so I looked into putting something on there um and I looked at some some short plays and some short pieces and this is going to sound terrible as a writer to say this but Frankly, I didn't want to deal with um, rights and having to buy um, playwrights. So I thought, I'm just going to write something. Let's let's see what happens. And so I wrote my first play in 2014, uh, a play about uh, fairy tale fairy tale characters and kind of accentuated, kind of like they were in a waiting room. And that's what kind of really started my journey off on writing my own pieces. And I just kind of felt this, this kind of part of me unlocked that was something that I'd had all this time of just loving stories, whether it be film or theatre, uh, comics, books, just the, the idea of storytelling. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to create. I want to create a production company that tells these stories. Um, and so the, the original production company that I created was called Light the Picture. Um, and we created a couple of plays, um, over a good few years, which I kind of honed my skills and some plays were good. Some plays were bad. Some plays were very bad. Um, but then we got to uh, a point and I kind of put it aside for a little bit to kind of pursue acting again. And it wasn't really until I kind of came back and we started Shipwreck did I kind of put that time back in and and kind of say, well, we've got the means now to create theatre, to create film and anything in between. So let's do that. Um, and, you know... All the way through, I've just been surrounded by such incredible, like pieces of work. Like honestly, my my most ins- my my biggest inspirations in terms of in terms of writing are you know Charlie Brooker, which was with his black books, like Black Mirror, sorry, not Black Book, <laughs> completely different kettle of fish. Um, all throughout the the the, uh, the um the tens we got like rod sterling who did the twilight zone which is a timeless classic you know i'm shakespeare itself there's just so many different things that you can just take pieces from um and that's what kind of just inspired me to write all these pieces really so talking about writing late night fish 
And if anybody hasn't heard about Late Night Fish, here is a sneak preview to Late Night Fish, which is released worldwide. And you can get more information on it through the Grey Hills website. Jesus, he weighs a ton. Easily 90 kg. Bit complimentary, don't you think? 90 kilos must be near 100, 105. Not sure. D doesn't feel too fatty. Yeah, well, muscle, it weighs more than fat, doesn't it? How? Well, muscle's denser. Fat's just, well, you know, fat. Oh. Do you reckon he'll sink us? No. Oh. Well, I suppose even if he did, he'd be doing our job for us. Yeah, I suppose so. So who is it, then? No idea. You don't know? No. Well, I thought you knew everything. I heard if anyone knows anything, it's Mikey Mike. You will evidently not everything. So no one told you? No. Not even Big Sonny? Not even Big Sonny. Oh. Well, how come? It's on a need-to-know basis, and I don't need to know. Right. Who told you it's a not-need-to-know? Oh, Tony, shut up. Well, can I at least see who it is? No! Why not? Because it's nothing to do with us. Who it is isn't our business. End of. And get Tino's legs to the weights. Why me? Do I need to say this again? You know, one of these days I'll be in charge and you'll be begging me for mercy. Yeah. Well, until then, you can tie those legs to the fucking weights and shut up. Do you smell something? What do you mean? Something's rotten. It's in the air. Are you talking about the situation or, or the actual smell? Dealer's choice. Could be him. Could be. What are you doing? Well, I'm humming the Godfather song. Thought it suited the situation. Well, could you put a cork in it? We're working. Well, exactly. I thought it might help. Yeah, the only hope it will do is catch someone's attention sooner and get us locked up quicker. So once again, shut it. Who's going to hear us all the way out here? We're in the middle of nowhere. We could kill this guy all over again and still no one would hear us. You'd be surprised. Now for the last time, shut up. Fine. <laughs> what so funny? <laughs> An orchestra. What about it? You think of situations like this in films where there's this powerful piece of music playing over the scenario that really gets you pumped up when actually it's silent. Sort of boring, really. Takes a fun out of the job. Life isn't a film tone and we aren't characters. So, Liam, after hearing that clip, um, what was the inspiration behind Late Night Fish? <sighs> What was the inspiration? Uh, now, I know there are some writers out there who are going to curse me for saying this, but uh, it started off with a recommendation. Uh, I just finished um, my my first two-hander, which was called Waiting for Mary, which was a, a piece that I was inspired from Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Um, I loved it, and I wanted to put my own spin on it, you know, and the way I kind of tagged it was uh, Howard and Kumar meets Waiting for Godot. Um, 
and we, we we did quite well with it. It won quite a lot of awards. It went on to the quarterfinals of this All England Theatre Festival. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get through with it. Um, but the secretary of the festival came up to us and, you know, sung our praises, you know, told us what she thought. But then she mentioned to go away and have a read of uh, a play by Harold Pinter called The Dumb Waiter. And she said, like, this is so up your alley. It's a two-hander. Um, go away and read it. And I think you should perform it. So I went away and read it. And for those who don't know, it's about uh, two hit men who were kind of waiting in this basement of a restaurant, waiting for their target to arrive, talking about everything and nothing. It's another one of those two-handers where, as they describe for Godot, everything happens, but nothing happens. And I just, I loved it. I thought it was a really good, clever piece. Um, and the twist that comes at the end was just, you know, it was like, whoa, I did not see this coming. And I suppose that's what I was like. I need to. I need to do something with this. This is a, a style that I love writing in: is reading some great pieces of work and then kind of putting it on its head and taking my own spin of it, like I did with uh, "Waiting for Mary" with, with "Waiting for Godot." Um, however, around that same time, I was also traveling Germany uh, as uh, touring some theatre, and in my downtime, I was trying to write something. I was uh, watching a lot of The Sopranos. I was watching gangster films. And I thought, I really want to write something about gangsters. And I, sp I suppose that's what started it. Like, I get the idea. and it, it has to have this in it. And I suppose that was the first building block. After that, um, I kind of thought about, you know, what what, can I, what about gangsters can I write about? Where, what, where can we set it, really? Um and I thought of all the tropes, all the scenes and settings that you get in the movies and the and TV. Um, but I thought, actually, how how interesting or complex or kind of eyebrow raising would it be to set an entire play on a boat? And I thought, well, gangsters, you know, according to cliche and folklore, well, they dispose of bodies on boats. They go out into a lake and they dump a body. And I suppose with those two building blocks of let's put a play on a boat and let's do it about gangsters became, you know, that's what started Late Night Fish. So then incorporate this menacing yet comedic piece by Pinter, the dumbwaiter, add all three elements. And that's where we have Late Night Fish. Was there any challenges to the play, Liam? Because obviously getting that inspiration was one of them. But from conception of the idea to fully putting on the play, what were some of the challenges that you faced? Oh, well, firstly, trying to do a play on a boat. Um, we, <laughs> as soon as the play was kind of um, past that conceptualization moment, it's like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Not unless it's a, a big boat or there's something interesting. Nobody wants to see somebody just sat in a boat for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. So we discussed, okay, where can it be set? So it's now a play that's kind of half on a dock and half in the boat. So there is that you know, that's still movement and world um, creating about it. Um, and I suppose another thing from a writing point of view was how cliche do you go with it? You know, I'm, I'm, I can tell everyone, I can assure everyone I'm not a gangster, you know, never, never been involved. Not yet. Um, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Maybe when they invite me, cause they like the place so much. Um, I'm, I'm not a gangster. So obviously I don't know the ins and outs. And as much as I've read some of um, some profile books and some interviews, um, a, a, a plethora of stories about the craze, you know, I'm never really going to get that insight. So I was like, okay, well, we don't want it. We don't want it to be so serious that people can pick it apart and go, oh, well, that doesn't happen. So we had to be, think about it. And so it, it somewhat became a bit of a meta piece. 
and the, the characters themselves re- reference these these gangster movies that inspired them. So are they really gangsters or are they just how we perceive them to be? So it was finding that nice mix. And and still, when it comes to finding that nice balance, that mix, it's um, it's a funny play. There are some funny moments, but it's also got this menacing overtone, which is, in my opinion, quite hard to find a, a very neat balance where people are both you know, they're relaxed and they're enjoying the piece, but also they're on the edge of their seats because they're not sure what's going to happen. Mm. Um, so finding that that place in the middle to meet um, was a difficult moment to, to deal with. Liam, tell us about your background and how you got into theatre. Because it's not, it's not as if you came from London, you had lots of theatre nearby, a bit like myself. You come from out in the wilderness. Um, so I'm really interested to kind of hear how you got into theatre uh, yeah, well this is a, a conversation I'm, I'm always talked about uh, well, it, it always gets brought up in conversation by my mum because she likes to always mention how there's not a single creative bone in the family so where so where has this come from um I come from a, a small town in Worcestershire called Droitwich where there is a theatre and coincidentally it is just across the road from me it's a, a small amateur uh, theatre called uh, the Norbury and um, when I was a kid, I wasn't particularly interested in theatre. I was a massive film buff but and a reader of books, a comic book fanatic, but that's kind of where it went. So I suppose I was more interested in stories first than acting. Um, but then I kind of went to this youth club that was involved um, at this local um, amateur theatre. Uh, all my friends happened to go there, and it was just a riot, just so fun. And I realised that all this time, you know, um, I'm a very energetic kid. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I was very kind of, I loved making people laugh. Um, I just felt like this was my element. This was my after school activity. I was never a sporty kid uh, or anything like that. I was, you know, I, this is something that I wanted to do. And so as I spent more time at this youth theatre, it wasn't particularly excessively academic, but it was a good place just to have a bit of fun and, you know, just kind of grow really. Um and it was that I, all this time, I never ex- really expected to be a, an actor at all. I actually wanted to be a, a teacher. So I, can, you know, I get older at this youth theatre um, until it comes to picking subjects for exams um, and qualifications. And I say, well, I want to do drama. You know, this is, if, if anything, just to learn to have confidence to address a room, especially if I'm teaching. And then my mum turned around to me and went, don't do drama. There's no money in it. So believe it or not, I didn't do it. I did I did woodwork instead. And if I'm honest, I don't think I, I should ever be let around any sort of hardware or tools again. <laughs> um, so after I finished my GCSEs, I kind of went back to my mum and I went, hmm, yeah, I think I'm going to do drama now. And she's like, yeah, okay, I understood. She saw me go through youth theatre. She saw me do a couple of plays. She's like, yeah, okay, maybe this is a thing. Um, and that's what I did. I, I did uh, my A-level qualification in drama and theatre studies. Um and then I got to the end of it and it was that choice of, well, do I go to university? Um, and to this day, I still haven't. I've always kind of, I, I still, I would love to go one day. It's still something on my to-do list, my bucket list at 27 years old. But I saw all my colleagues and friends and, and you know, at school uh, around me going to university. And I just thought, well, it was, it was t- 2013. I was like, I don't, the student funds had just gone up back up to nine grand in England. I was like, I don't. I don't want to go and spend up to £28,000 I don't have on a degree 
that mm-hmm. I might not even use. Yeah. So I was told about a local foundation course at the Swan Theatre in Worcester. Um, it was much more affordable. It was for one year. I'd be working with some professional actors. Um, it was part time, so I could work around it. And at the very end, your kind of final exam is a, a part in the professional performance at the Worcestershire Rep. And I thought, well, that that suits me much better. And I'm, I pride myself about this. And as much as I have a different experience to people who go to university or to drama school, I'm sure it works for them. Uh, and like I say, I would like to do it. I'm very proud to have got into the industry the old way, the old fashioned way before mm. big drama schools, the time of like O'Toole and um, Olivier and McKellen, who kind of got in through networking by doing repertory theatre, you know, yeah. and it, it was, it was, a, a, it's a different way. You know, you learn off, you're not yeah. learning academically you're learning off the people you're working with you're, you're seeing yeah. how that actor goes about and learns his line how that actor goes about with his physicality and I'm very you know I'm, I'm very thankful for all the different actors and creatives who have been in my life um, who I've been able to learn off um, I wouldn't exactly call myself a, an incredible actor you know I, I kind of have I gave it up for a while over COVID time and I'm only just kind of going back into it but regardless they had a massive impact on my you know my kind of charisma my confidence levels my creativity to write to act so yeah it's it's a different avenue and um I suppose that's how I kind of got into this industry to where I am today I don't think there is a right or wrong how to get into theatre and I think previous generations had it much easier when there was a lot more repertoire theatre I think our industry today makes acting and our profession look more glamorous than what it actually is (laughs) oh god yeah um, but I do think I, th- I do think what you said is really valuable because I don't think there is a right or wrong to get into acting. I mean, m- myself, like I spent so much time in amateur dramatics, but there's nothing different from that than not being on a professional show. It's about how many times can you do a show to feel present on stage, keep up the charisma, how can you learn in your feet, adapt, how quick can you get the text in to to performance level and I think it's becoming harder and harder and harder. Absolutely. I one of the the pivotal moments which kind of made my decision about um about university at the time, because even after this foundation degree, I had the choice of taking that and going off to uni. Um I'd just written my second piece and had made friends with a, an incredible actor now. He's down in London doing great work, but he'd only done a couple of productions. And so I was like, okay, well, I've just written this play. Um, would you like to come and join me and be in it? He's like, yeah, great. He did a fantastic job for one of his first acting roles. Um, and I was so chuffed with him. Um, and then we actually worked together again uh, in a performance of Macbeth in Stratford-upon-Avon. And at the time, he was also going for drama school. Um, he'd already been to university, got a degree, and he wanted to go back uh, to drama school for a master's. And he told me about one drama school he went to. I, even if I wanted to tell you, I, I don't, I can't recall which one it was. But they asked. He went on stage. They asked him some questions, and they asked. Um, they looked at his kind of file and said, "So you've you've been to boarding school, and then you've gone to university, and now you're here." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's right." And he said that as soon as they asked that question, they just kind of all put down their pencils, sat back in their chair and went, okay, well, begin. So he performed his monologue. Um, Afterwards, they commended him and said, it was really good, but you have no life experience. And that was the reason why he didn't get in. And I thought, 
yeah, that's, and I thought that's so harsh because he is a good actor. But mm. I did think about it from their point of view, and yeah, to be, I, I, I think being, uh, you know, uh, a well-rounded person who, you know, has had a job in their life or has gone and explored or has travelled mm. or has kind of, you know, lots of notches on their kind of <laughs> notches in their life just to show that kind of life experience. Um, I think that, I think I, I kind of started to see it from their point of view. And I thought, well, mm. yeah, university, you'll learn a lot, but will you experience a lot? And, I, and like you said, there is yeah. no right or wrong way. Yeah, no, it's really interesting that you said that. And I'm glad that you've said that because um, I don't think I've shared this publicly, but I started auditioning for theatre. I was really late, actually, uh, by the age, I think it was 23 or 26. And mm. I wasn't getting into like the three year courses. Um, and my background really is council estate, if that makes sense, really high deprived area. I mean, I do not fit into, I, well, let me rephrase that. I feel as though I don't fit into this area because what I really like, there isn't any opportunities for me to take part in. So that was one thing. But what, like what you said, when I was acting and I took one-to-one classes, I was on Amdram stages, being part of the chorus, singing all the time. And my background before that was um, actually gigging and being in music and writing music and being in bands. Um I know, right? You can't imagine. I, I had no idea. I know, right? I, I think the insight's on you today, Barry, not me. <laughs> but like your friend, and this is what I was coming on to, I found that I was at a disadvantage for my age. And then I got into Royal Welsh, which was just, for me anyway, it was that Hogwarts experience of I really needed this to advance in my, and what you said earlier about my confidence, my creativity, my belief in my skill set, um, and that took me a while. But yeah, and I'm so glad you said that because I think there is this thing with the education system where they keep trying to push you into boxes, and I don't think it's that at all for actors. And quite interestingly, it's not like that in America, and it's not like that in Australia. It seems to be here in the UK that there's this big emphasis and I'm always amazed at the actors mm-hmm. that actually go to UK theatre schools, um, like the National Youth Theatre and that, who just go there and then kind of transform into stage and put in a professional capacity. And I think there's something about that. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm so glad you said that. Absolutely. Liam, you've travelled with theatre. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I. Uh, this was sort of one of my bigger jobs that I kind of had... Um, God, when was it? About 2017, really. I've always had like um, a wanderlust in my in my body to kind of go out and explore and and travel. Um, and so the opportunity to come up and work with a theatre company in Germany called Whitehorse Theatre um, arose. It's it was a TI it was a TIE theatre and education gig, but uh, frankly, at the time, to go and do the job that you love in a country that you've never seen, get paid just it just ticked all the right boxes for me and so I went out to to Germany to go and tour uh well to, to tour, all, tour all of East Germany with uh, Whitehorse Theatre for nine months it was an incredible experience and I, I it was again you know someone who hasn't worked gone been to university you know I haven't I haven't really had that independence of going off and and living in university dorms but so instead my kind of experience of kind of escape you know 
escaping the nest was you know uh traveling with um three other actors in a van around germany for nine months um and don't get me wrong we had some good moments some bad moments some very bad <laughs> moments but also some incredible moments and it was just it was just for anybody i suppose who just wants to do that it's hard work living out of a suitcase for so long and mm. you know the hours are kind of a bit all over the place but it's just an incredible experience so much so that i kind of came back um i traveled again on my own back um for a little bit and then come the uh the, the european school terms again i um i took up a job with a, a spanish-based uh theater company called uh clever pants great name great name and did the same thing for another six months in in spain and portugal um and I just, I, I think they're just an incredible opportunity for especially young actors who just kind of, you know, the, the pay is good. It's not great because, well, that's the way of the world, isn't it? But um, to be able to go out and do the job that you want to do and see the world and get paid for it and meet some best friends for life. Like to think that if I didn't go on that, that tour to Germany, I never would have met Charles, who is one of my company partners at Shipwreck mm. now. If I if I if we never went to Germany, would Shipwreck be a thing? Would late night fish be a thing? Would I know you? It's it's mm. it's kind of those things in life where you're like, wow, yeah, and it's yeah, it was a it, it was a great time in my life, and I would love to do it again if I was younger. Well, that brings us to the next question because you you joined up, lovely. Um, I'm really interested in sharing our story because you become involved in a collaboration with the Grey Hill. And there's not many writers at the moment who's seen their play and then seen the possibilities of making it digital. I would love to just kind of hear your thoughts about how this collaboration started and what made you take the jump to working with the Greyhill and myself and kind of going, why does Late Night Fish not just have to be a live performance? And when did you start thinking about, yeah, it could be this, if that makes sense? Oh, I see, Barry. I see. This is time for me to to praise the Cray Hill and all the all the good work that you and uh, I see through you. <laughs> no, not necessarily. No, not at all. I, honestly, I just want your truthful opinion. But what I'm trying to say is, oh, it, it's it's going to be truthful. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, but what I'm trying to say is, I think a lot of the industry are stuck into this mentality of saying, "I've written a play, therefore it should be live." But you've done something different, which is, yes, you've written a play and it was live, but you also made the decision earlier on to make it digital. And that's something that not a lot of people are doing at the moment. So I'm, I'm wanting to kind of know from your perspective of a writer, what made you go down that road to where we are today with Late Night Fish being published electronically? It's a really good question. And um, I just want to say, first and foremost, just the collaboration and the uh, opportunities given by the Grey Hill have just helped with this decision and the answer that uh, I give now. But I think if you take your story, the, the piece that you've made, be it play, you know, for a stage play, screenplay, audio play, whatever, if you take away all the specifics, the technicality, it's a story, like any story that's ever been written or ever been created, and you can do anything you want with a story. There's always a way. Of course, you know, some mediums uh, may be better than others, but it's a story that can be told in a plethora of ways. And, you know, take, for example, you know, anything by, by William Shakespeare. You know, it's a stage play. It was written as a play. But now there's some of the biggest Hollywood films. 
you know, that, that be it the actual traditional ones or, you know, the great adaptations like, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You, you know. The Lion King. <laughs> and the Lion- How could we forget about The Lion King? So sorry. So sorry. Um, so when it comes to, when I just, I had, I've had this idea for many of my plays and I think, why not tell your story in as many different ways as possible? Make it accessible to anyone you want to make it accessible to. So um, I am a, a playwright. So I write plays um, and I love seeing my plays on stage. Um, but I'm also a film buff I l- and I love seeing films. And, you know, Late Night Fish is about gangsters. It's, you know, it's a, there's a whole genre it would work as a gangster film. It's also a play full about suspense and a conversation between two men. So it becomes a great audio story, which is where the Grey Hill came in and offered me the opportunity to to adapt it into an audio piece. And you'd be surprised if you, when you just kind of take that step outside the box with your story and try mm-hmm. it in a different and see it in a different light. You know, I, I have always seen this piece as a as a theatre piece, as I just said. Um, the two actors on stage. But as soon as when we created together this audio piece and we took away that visualisation of two actors on stage, um, the boat, the, the physical comedy, you know, there is a physical comedy play with, you know, genuinely hilarious moments. When you take that away and you hear two people conspiring with each other, who then go away and there's a silence and you hear a cock of a gun, suddenly it becomes a whole, it becomes a lot less comedic. It becomes more menacing. It, it's, it's the same story, but in a completely different view. Um, one opportunity I was really, you know, it was a horrible situation, but I'm very thankful that we had this. In, during our, the, the straight lockdowns of 2020, um, everyone at Shipwreck, we were getting very frustrated. We wanted to create something, but we just couldn't because... We couldn't see anybody. So I, um, I saw an opportunity through uh, a festival known as the Living Record Festival, an online digital arts festival. And I threw us into it to create some sort of digital art, something that we can show and get out there. And I thought about writing something brand new for it. Um, but then I kind of went back through my archive of writing and I found a play that hadn't really worked the adjudicator um, who kind of looked and judged the piece actually used this phrase, which I think is one of the most horrible things you can say, even whether it's intended or not, uh, to a writer. He just said, I don't get it. <gasps> Ooh. I know. I know. And I think that's that can it really, it, I stopped writing for about a year or two because of it. I was like, okay, um, I felt out of touch. So I looked mm. at this piece, which was about a couple who had just broken up and they were trying to rekindle their relationship. And with them, um, behind the scenes are their their minds personifications, like their their actual minds. They're speaking out loud, but no one can hear them. And I thought, well, this play, which is really quite raw about a, a relationship, what if we were to do that as a Zoom conversation about a couple still trying to get back together, but during lockdown? lockdown a really difficult time we were isolating we were lonely we yearned for people just to be around us and so we adapted it we took the same play which was a theater play that someone said they don't get and turned it into a screenplay to be filmed in lockdown conditions you know via zoom via web link 
uh, and the use of green screen because the actors would be green screened um, and just the new setting of the same story but in lockdown and I'm, we're very happy to say that it was it was a success, successful show. It, it got four stars from a um, a, a number of uh, reviewers. People said it was a real thought provoking uh, piece, um, and I was very happy to say that someone say that it's kind of everyone's story because it's one of those stories that everyone can relate to from COVID. So what was a theatre piece that someone said that didn't work because they didn't get it suddenly becomes quite a good and acclaimed. Um, screen uh film project so i do believe that any story you write can be adapted into any medium and you never know what you might get the result isn't can be incredible so would you say from there that's what opened your eyes more to doing late night fish digitally oh absolutely i mean we'd already had this conversation but i was i was very confident with where you were going to take it um and i was you know, I, I felt very confident with you in the Great Hill. And when we kind of heard it, um, when I kind of heard that draft and the actors, um, I was just overwhelmed by how mm. different it was and how it was the same play, but just in a completely different perspective. Um, what would you say the difference between the two are, like between live and then listening to it? Oh, um, I, th- I think live... Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is a, that there is that that balance between being funny and being um, being menacing because it needs to, it needs that. It's about gangsters, it's about life and death, but it's also got physical comedy moments where two actors are try, trying to throw um, a body sack into a inflatable boat. It's it's ridiculous, but you take away that physical comedy, and you know they're talking about dumping a body in the middle of a lake. You know, maybe we should kill him. Maybe we should kill that. It's not funny anymore. Okay, there's a there are some things that get mentioned that are worth a titter, but it's actually much more menacing. It's it's harder to visualize it being you know a slapstick hey ho, and it's easier yeah. to maybe visualize it as a hard hitting thriller kind of drama piece. Yeah, I think it's um, listening to it. I think it's really deep, whereas I can't imagine seeing it live and it being slightly as you say, comedic, but straight as well. And I'm kind of like, oh, that's interesting. I think that's the good part of audio and that it's it's not changing the play in any sense. It highlights certain parts of it better, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think that's the power of just choosing your medium. And I don't think there's a right or wrong one. It's the whole, you know, kind of uh, evolution of a piece and, uh, you know, and a story that you want to tell. Um, you know, I, if, if I had the the resources, I would love to be able to turn any of my stories into, you know, all of the above, a theatre play that you can go and see live, a film that you can go and watch whenever you want, or an audiobook that you can just listen to whenever you want, because each one is going to have a, a different reaction and, you know, create something different. One other question that I wanted to ask you about the partnership with the Grey Hill, only because not many have done it, was what was it like during the production of Grey Hill for you as a writer and what were some of the thoughts that you were going through during that time of working with us? I mean if we're if to be completely transparent you know there are there were moments of nerve you know like we said I come from a theatre background I don't know the first thing about audio you know Shipwreck is a multimedia company we do produce films and audio but you know 
my skills are much more limited there because I'm a I'm a playwright, I'm an actor, a uh, theatre maker. So there was that, you know, would it that kind of uh, uh, would it work? The apprehension, would it work? And I can't do it. So obviously, you're, and you know, I think this is a this is a, uh, a very much a, a writer's thing. Um, you know, being able to trust somebody with your play. Mm. Um, whether it be a, a theatre director, a film director, an audio director, or, an, or just another company in general, you know, trusting your baby, your piece uh, mm. with someone and hoping, um, you know, whilst you're away, that something magical is created. And so I suppose, and it's easier said than done, you just got to have that trust. And I'm very, uh, you know, I, I, I can sing praises to the Grey Hill all day that, you know, the Grey Hill were completely transparent from the very beginning. Um, even during moments of like trepidation and, you know, apprehension and, you know, the question stage of like, oh, I don't, will this work? Will that work? You know, you were just completely there and you told us exactly how it was. And you you involved us. You, you had a, a beautiful balance in that you involved me as the writer and you kept me updated but you also kept me at arm's length because you know you could have very easily like let me come in and you know you know flip the table because oh I didn't like that because I'm coming at it from a theatre point of view but that would have just ruined it it wouldn't have been as good of a, an audio play so building that trust and knowing that that trust is there and you know when you see the final results it just makes it completely worthwhile it's um and also, like, you know, one, if you are having those moments of doubt and nerves because, you know, you haven't got your hand on the steering wheel, as it were, um, just, you know, you just have to remember that someone wants to go away and do something incredible with your work. You know, that's that's bound to happen. You're a writer. You know, you can't have your hand on it all the time. You've got to let it out, go out there and be free, I suppose. They grow up so fast, Barry. Yeah. <laughs> it- just a note to the listeners, um, I didn't expect Liam to say that and I really appreciate hearing that. Um, it really does mean a lot to me. And yeah, no, thank you. It was a really good experience. And actually it was an experience because at the time I did about six books and this was like the seventh or eighth. And Liam was actually one of the first younger playwrights, actually the youngest playwright at the time, to work with us and totally believe in me and the organization and it was so exciting and from seeing Liam when I first met him to where he is now oh my god like you have tremendously grown as a person you're like I I, I, I still remember what I said to you when I first met you which was this experience will completely transform your life and it will take you to places and it has, which is lovely, and I truly admire watching that journey from a distance. Liam, before we finish up, what other projects are you working on at the moment? Oh God. Um, well, uh, if, if people can't hear, I'm, I'm currently going through a stress cold because I'm very excited to announce that. Um, well, I say announce; it's been out there for a while. We're actually taking Late Night Fish on its uh, professional theatrical debut. Um, um, it's already done the amateur circuit with the uh, the, the Worcester Theatre Festival and the All England Theatre Festival. It's won 
plenty of accolades through those. We won the Jeffrey Whitworth for new writing, which was how we met Barry. It was actually. (laughs) And more recently, we won the Sir Derek Jacobi Award for playwriting. And, you know, we're just so proud of this piece. So we're very happy to say that we're taking it on tour. We are performing in two weeks in Birmingham at the Crescent Theatre as a part of Birmingham Fest, um, which is sort of, in a way, a bit of a theatrical preview for our two weeks down at the Camden Fringe in August. Oh, my goodness. yeah, which we're really excited for. We've got a, uh, a great, uh, we've got two great venues. Uh, one being uh, the Hen and Chickens, kind of squat, slap bang in the middle of Camden, um, and the other one being the Canal Cafe, which is kind of Little Italy, Westminster. Both very accommodating venues, which we're so we're really looking forward to looking forward to bringing this small little, kind of nice, comfy, cozy piece down there, um, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, on top of that, um, I've just re- I've written another play as a part of uh, a young writers course with a, a theatre company named Pentabus. I don't um, know about this. I'm super oh, excited. Well, it's a, a ten minute monologue, oh, and it's nice. being well. By the time I'm sure this comes out, it'll uh, it, this is happening next week, uh, and it's being performed in Hereford at the Courtyard. Um, but on top of all this, uh, we've got plenty of plans at Shipwreck. Um, we're both a creative and commercial industry, so we're both you know, reaching out to clients for anything that they want us to create. So, you know, we do everything from theatre filming to um, branding to any sort of kind of videography and photography content. But on the flip side, uh, our creative department, um, we're hoping to take Late Night Fish on a kind of more rural tour around the UK, um, funding dependent. So once we've kind of taken it down to London, it's got some reviews in, some audience um you know, kind of feedback. We're hoping we can take it on tour so everyone can kind of see this play. Um, after that, we've got plenty of other things that we want to bring, everything from plays about the Greeks, about the Norse mythology, about uh, a, trilo- a trilogy of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, hopefully I'll have I'll have a, a holiday before then and maybe a sleep. But um, <laughs> yeah, just and keep working. Liam, where can people get tickets for both of these for Birmingham and and Camden? So um, you can find it in the links in our bios in all of our social medias um, at Shipwreck Crew. Um, Or if you go to the Camden Fringe website and go to your shows or the Birmingham Fest um, website, you'll be able to find it uh, Late Night Fish. Um, Tickets are £10, concession seven. um, Or for students um, in Birmingham, I'm doing a £5 deal because students have no money and i feel that (laughs) (laughs) well that's very kind of you um so if you're living nearby in birmingham or fancy a little holiday or likewise if you're going into london or live near camden please do check it out liam please do not be a stranger i could talk to you forever as Every phone call we have, we talk a lot. And before this podcast, where we're talking about uh, Thor, Love and Thunder. Don't. <laughs> That's don't a do this. podcast. That is. <laughs> um, please don't be a stranger, mate. I wish you all the best. And I'll put the links on the podcast where people can find it. And just to let you know, guys, that uh, Late Night Fish is available internationally through iTunes and Amazon and Audible. Uh, more information on the Grey Hills website. Liam, thank you so much. I'm I'm sad that this has come to the end, but you're a busy guy. 
Um, I'm Barry Robertson. Thank you very much for listening to Insights, the podcast. Thanks for listening to another Insights podcast. If you would like to be featured on an upcoming episode, then contact us via thegreyhill.com and clicking on the Contact Us banner at the bottom right-hand corner of the page. And you too could be featured in one of our episodes.